welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we hope you join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We are located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After the message, take a moment and visit our website at vcctulare.com. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, this morning we're going to be in John 3. Already made it to the third chapter. So as you remember, uh, you know, this is a first visit for Christ uh, in his public ministry as he begins uh, that public ministry. First visit to uh, Jerusalem, I mean. And, you know, he'd actually been there a lot. And, and if you go back and read some of the stories and so forth, you know, he, as a baby, as eight years old, his parents brought him to the temple, as good Jewish parents would do. And, and then at 12 years old, he was, you know, in the temple. And, and we, we've read that story before and so forth. So his parents were good Jewish parents, teaching their children his, uh, their faith. And uh, that was a great thing for them to do. You know, whenever a Jewish family could, they would, they would make it to Jerusalem for Passover. And, you know, they did this because it was, it was a lot of fun uh, to come in for Passover. It's an important celebration, but also it was a lot of fun for them at the same time. You know, God had set up the Jewish calendar that almost every month in that calendar year, they would have some type of big celebration. God wanted the people celebrating, not only, you know, for that time to build relationships, but also to worship Him and to recognize Him in their lives and how He provides for them. And, and that's always a good thing. Uh, and, you know, Jesus came into the temple and he became very emotional, not because of the beauty of the building, which back then it was one of the most beautiful buildings around, but it wasn't very emotional for that, but because of the abomination that was happening inside the temple. The people who came to worship were being taken advantage of, as we discussed last week. So he had this righteous anger about him. It's, it's a, you know, not an out-of-control anger, as in a, in, you know, ungodly anger, but this godly anger of saying, this is not right. And that's the anger, and that's what we started seeing in Christ. Um, and he started sitting in a corner, making a whip. And when he got finished making that whip, and who knows how long that took, he starts swinging her around and starts turning over tables and getting very upset. And he cried out, this is not what this place should be about. And I think the Lord gets very angry when churches try to make a buck off the people. So many churches come with the view that the more you give, the more that God likes you. And it's such a, it's a terrible view to have. So around here, you know, we try not to do that around here. We teach what the Word says. And the Word says to worship. Part of that worship is giving of yourself, giving what the Lord's provided you. We're not going to beat it over your head. That's what the Word says. You should respond to Him, you know, through giving back what He's provided you. It's plain and simple. So we just remind that, you know, remind it as it comes up in the scriptures, but we don't do our yearly tithing, you know, uh, sermons and so forth. I, I just don't think that's necessary. I don't think that's a, a good way of doing it, of presenting God, because then it's all about the money instead of about the worship. So Jesus comes and he begins to reveal these things 
to the people. And he causes quite a stir among the people. I mean, the, the religious authorities came and, and questioned him. And they would have reported back to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were, you know, a council of 70 rulers, uh, the Jewish rulers in Israel. And they would have gone to him and said, okay, here's what he said, and, and this is what we said. This is kind of how the conversation went. And this would have been put down in the official records of the Sanhedrin. And this would be the beginning of them recognizing that Jesus was going to be a problem for them. That this man, that, that he, he's not really claiming to be the Messiah yet, but we can kind of see those tendencies. Of, you know, he's kind of out there. He's going to be a problem for us. Now, John chapter 3 leads us to believe that this is kind of the same time period as, as him coming in and, and just kind of, you know, making that disturbance in the temple. And the Sanhedrin had already had their report. You can imagine that the high priest is very upset because he made a lot of money off that market that Jesus just went in and, and destroyed and got all the people riled up and talking about it, whether, you know, what Jesus did was right or, or what he did was wrong. And, and, you know, so you would have all the people just talking about it all over Jerusalem. I mean, it's just piled with something like 2 million people for Passover time, they estimate. And this mess has got to be cleaned up. So let's see what happens in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, uh, teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So the Bible automatically starts telling us a couple of things about Nicodemus. And there's some extra biblical writings out there, Jewish writings and so forth, about this man. He's a very important figure in the, in the Jewish history. So what does the Bible tell us? Well, first of all, he was a Pharisee. Well, what is a Pharisee? Today we look at that word Pharisee and we kind of, that's a negative word uh, for today's society. Because we've learned that the more we read the Bible, the more Jesus kind of just, you know, uh, you know, cuts away at the Pharisees and in a sense undercuts them. So it's a negative word. But back then it wasn't a negative word. Um, it was something very different. It was, meant, uh, it was meant that somebody who really loved the Lord and therefore tried to live what they believed. That was a Pharisee. So to be a good Pharisee was a good thing. They were the religious conservatives of the day. And, the balance, and they were balanced by the, the Sadducees, which were more the liberal uh, aspect doctrinally in their beliefs. And, and how you can kind of remember the Sadducees is they did not believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. I know it's a little kid trick, but it's a good way to remember it. You know, they were Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they were kind of balanced between the two. So they had the Council of the Seventy and seventy men who, who ruled all Jews all over the world. So anybody who lived outside of Jerusalem and, and they were good Jewish, they looked to these guys. Uh, you know, they, this is like our Supreme Court on American law. And, and Rome would kind of look down on them a little bit and they would say, well, well, we'll allow you to do this as long as you can keep your people under control. As long as you follow what we tell you and then you keep your people under control, everything's hunky-dory. We're okay with that. However, if you don't, we're going to step in. And we see Rome actually do that in, in about, you know, between 66 and 70 AD, where, where they literally tear the temple all apart. Uh, so we see Rome do that. And they basically say, you worship your one God, which is really kind of weird to us because we have multiple gods. You know, it's, it's really boring. You, you go ahead and worship your one God. 
But keep doing that as, as long as you follow the rules. So the Sanhedrin was, was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees. And at that time, you know, during the time of Christ, the Sadducees were actually in the majority. So the Pharisees were like the Bible thumpers of the day. They were experts in anything biblical. And the best teachers in all of Israel in the first century were the Pharisees. So, you know, we know about some of these guys. Gamaliel was, was the teacher of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was a, you know, everybody knew about Gamaliel. The Apostle Paul was himself an up-and-coming Pharisee. He kind of got sidetracked by wanting to persecute the, the Christians, and then he got even more sidetracked when he met Christ. But he never stopped being a Pharisee. In fact, in, in his books, later in life, he would say, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. And it was not a negative thing. Nicodemus was also a teacher and a very powerful man. And now we move kind of to the Talmud and, and, and Josephus, which was a Jewish historian, you know, writing different things to find out more about this guy. And he tells us that Nicodemus was considered the teacher in Israel. If you needed to find out whether something was biblical, you know, when it comes to the Pentateuch and the, and the early Christian writings and the, you know, the history books and all this, if you wanted to find out if it was biblical, who did you ultimately go to? You went to Nicodemus. He was the teacher in Israel. That he and Gamaliel shared the boasting rights about being the best. Was so, you know, really good at you know, teaching that, that, you know, he said, if you want to learn, you come to me. Not, not in a, well, I'm just so good. But it was just like you recognized the guy was good. So if you wanted to learn, you just went to him to be taught. The, you know, and young Jewish guys from all over the world would come and be trained. And then they would go back to their countries and teach just like he did. This is like the Ivy League, the Stanford or Yale or, or Harvard, the MIT of the biblical world. That's what these guys were. The Talmud also tells us that Nicodemus was one of the, the four most richest men in Jerusalem. We have to learn a little bit about these guys from, from different writings and so forth because this is the guy that's come to Jesus in chapter 3 here. And to understand who he is is important as the time that he's coming and what he has to say. Early in, on in the scripture, you, you have Jesus coming to, to the poor people. Coming to those that, that were in need. You know, a wedding, they ran out of wine. He fixed it. You know, he would go in and he would start doing all these signs and wonders and healings and so forth. And it was all for the poor people. But you would also have people that you wouldn't necessarily call poor or needy. Nicodemus was not needy financially. If anyone had it made, if anyone had the respect of his peers, if anybody who had job satisfaction, it was Nicodemus. He could give you a ruling on this. Well, you come to him. He said, well, set it up with my secretary. I'll talk to you next Thursday. I mean, he was that type of guy. I mean, he was a busy guy. Nicodemus was in his prime. He was like the top of his game. And yet here's this guy coming to Jesus. Jesus the Galilean. Jesus the type of guy that would show up to a roundup, okay? And he's coming to Jesus at night. Why at night? He cannot be seen with Jesus. The high priest would not be happy about Nicodemus coming to Jesus because Nicodemus is part of the Sanhedrin. Who's in charge of the Sanhedrin? The high priest. This is just not acceptable. Jesus had just come through the temple and claimed authority by throwing people out and throwing over tables. 
So you have to understand the background as to why Nicodemus is coming to him. Nicodemus is a good guy. He wants to please God. And the reason that he's a Pharisee is for a great reason. I want to teach about righteousness. I want to teach so you can know the Lord that I know. That's Nicodemus' thoughts on this. He wanted to know Christ. He wanted to, I mean, not Christ. He wanted to know his God. So he came to Jesus. And what's amazing to me He had everything figured out until Jesus came along. The teacher, the Bible answer man. He had everything figured out and then Jesus shows up. So Jesus has this amazing conversation with him and turns everything upside down. He comes at night and says, hey, rabbi. And this is, you know, what a compliment. Because rabbi was the word teacher. So he's coming to Jesus, he's coming to Christ, and he's recognizing you're a good teacher, and he's saying, Rabbi, he's given that honor to him. Rabbi, we know. We know. Who is we? The we is the Sanhedrin. It's not his wife, it's the Sanhedrin. When no one is around, when it's just us talking, we know. When the lights are off, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one else can do these things that you do unless God is with him. That means they've been talking about it. That means they recognize it. Something is different about this particular guy. So they sent me to talk with you. So what is the deal with you? You you notice that he doesn't even really ask a question here yet. He just says, we know this about you. And Jesus cuts right in very quickly and says to him, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, And he's not talking like a rabbi here. He's not going, well, you know, that's a very complicated question. Well, the guy hasn't even, you know, asked a question. But he's not acting like that. When somebody comes to me and something's really complicated, I go, well, you know, here's one option, here's one view, and these scholars think it it may be this, and here's my input into it, and, uh, you know, those type of things. but, But Jesus says, most assuredly, he absolutely knows The options that I give you are usually on gray area stuff. It's usually the stuff that you can look at one scripture and say, well, I think it's this. And then you go to another scripture and you say, well, I think it may be this. And they kind of look like they're opposites. It's kind of a gray area. We don't build our foundation of, of faith about God and Christ on these areas like that. We build our foundation on areas that are that you look at the totality of the Bible and you go, okay, this, this is very clear on this doctrine. We don't build doctrine off of one verse or two verses. But with Jesus, he is the word, and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus hasn't even asked a question yet, but Jesus is already speaking almost offensively toward him. You know, like like sports, you know, he's on the offensive here. Nick? Let me tell you. Can I, can I call you Nick? Let me tell you something, Nick. We could have this scholarly conversation and, uh, you know, and all that. Or I could just tell you the truth. So let's not, you know, do all that. Let's just go for the truth here. Let's not beat around the bush. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I wish there was another way, but there is not. In fact, it's going to be painful for me. In fact, I don't even want to have this conversation with you unless you want to be born again because you won't get it. 
You won't understand it unless you're born again. Are you following me here? Do, do, these, you know, do you have conversations with people who don't get it? Do you ever have conversations about the Bible or you know, about your faith? And they're just kind of looking at you like, you believe what? Huh? Wait a second. They just don't get it because they haven't been born again. And that's what he's talking about here. You know, others say, oh, I was just so blessed by this passage. And, and you read it and you go, I don't even understand it. Without the Holy Spirit, you sometimes just will not understand it. And that is what Jesus is saying to Nick here. Nick, I can tell you, but you won't understand. And if you're not born again, you won't be able to see the kingdom of God. Not that you won't want to, not that you don't desire to, you just won't be able to. Nick, trust me, if anybody could do this through studying, you could. If anybody have enough knowledge to understand God, it's you because you're the man. But you are not born again. Because it's not all about knowledge. Knowledge is good, but it's not all about knowledge. You know your Bible back and forth, Nick. But yet you're here at night talking to me, trying to figure it out. And this is really what Jesus says to a lot of religious people. Because the first step in reforming or being transformed from a religious person into a you know, person that just believes God is admitting sometimes, I just don't get it. I just don't understand this. Lord, Holy Spirit, Christ, help me understand this. One of the greatest things you could ever say is, I just don't get it. So let me go to the Lord and see if He can help me figure it out. The worst thing you can have in life is somebody who always has the answer. Somebody who says, you know, that's so definitive on their answers. You know, it's good to have knowledge, but, but only connected with the Holy Spirit. Or it's just knowledge. Now, my wife accuses me of being full, or full of useless information. So one Christmas, she even bought me a book that says, or the title of the book is, The Book of Useless Information. I don't know why I know, like, weird facts. I just do. But I don't want to be that way with the Bible. I don't want to go, oh, did you know about this talking donkey? You know, we had a conversation yesterday about Balaam. I don't want to be all the, the little nooks and cranny and, and just, oh, well, let me tell you, you know, let me expound my knowledge. Without the Holy Spirit, I don't want to be that guy. Believing is more knowledge. Believing is acting upon what we study. Believing is admitting that he takes my sins away. Believing leads me to worship him. Believing is a lifestyle change. Believing is allowing the Holy Spirit actual control in my life, which that's a tough battle. Nick, you need to be born again, and that's all there, you know, that's all there is to it. The rest of the conversation means nothing without this first part. Verse 4 says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? I would be confused too. And here's a Pharisee coming out to him. And he's not even offended that Jesus just said this. He just says, What are you talking about? I don't get it. I'm old. I can't be born again. What do you mean? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb 
and be born. And he knows that this can't happen. But he doesn't know what Jesus is saying. So he goes back to to what he does know. This can't happen. Why are you talking about birth here, Jesus? See, the more you study about the, the, the more you study the other gospels and what Jesus says here, you start to understand that, that, you know, coming to Jesus and the Father is a lot like a human birth. There's a seed planted, a germination follows, and pregnancy of sorts takes place, and then the contractions hit, and you're shoved out into this world. And then all of a sudden you're like, ah, I want to go back. And it's very uncomfortable. We like the comfort of the womb. And then we are born. We're like, I want to go back to my ignorance. I want to go back where it's safe. And Jesus is like, nope, you're out now, buddy. That's it. I want you to understand these spiritual things. And that's what he's talking to Nicodemus about. In verse 5 he says, Jesus answers, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Come on, Nick. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I would imagine that the wind probably picked up exactly that moment. I mean, the Lord controls the heaven, the earth, the winds, and the waves. I mean, He controls it all. And I'm sure the wind picked up and He goes, Do you hear that, Nick? Do you hear the wind? You don't see it. You don't see where it's going. You don't see where it's coming from. Do you hear those chimes going? And when the Spirit enters a person, the effects can be seen. Yet, they don't look different on the outside. Same skin, same look. It's not like all of a sudden your hair turns a different color. You don't change on the outside. It's an inside change. And we know from the Talmud that uh, Nicodemus did change. It says that he, you know, it talks about how he became a believer and a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. Who they list, ironically, as an illegitimate son of Mary of Nazareth. And it says that you have to be born of water and spirit. Now, this is where the commentaries start splitting apart, uh, where you kind of get some commentators, uh, the, you know, those that have studied uh, uh, the word extensively, some that believe this way and some that believe that way. So I'm going to kind of give you both of what their view is, and then I'll tell you what I think. First of all, you might be, ta- you know, you might be uh, thinking that he's talking about water baptism here. He might be saying, hey... You have to make a little bit of effort here. You have to repent, and then you have to be baptized. And if you don't physically get dunked, if you don't physically get baptized, then you won't be able to go to heaven. He might be saying, unless you're willing to do this, then you're really not following me. That's choice number one. Number two, he might be talking about the washing of the regeneration. Again, that's another church word. What does regeneration mean? Well, let me tell you. In the Old Testament, there are several scriptures that talk about how our relationship with God washes us. I'm going to jump to Ezekiel. You don't have to turn there because we're going to come back really quickly. But in Ezekiel 36, 25, the Lord promises... Uh, The Lord promises a time when I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. I will give you a new heart... And put a new spirit within you. 
Well, this would have been a radical uh, view for a Jew to think of God or think of the Spirit of God who resides in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, coming out and will be in them. But this is exactly what Jesus was teaching. Joel also says that, that, that also says this in his writings, and, and even David goes through this awful time of sin in his life. And if you study the book of David, you know what he did. I mean, he, he, he was a womanizer. He, he did lots of things that weren't great. But he always went back to God. And that's the key for David's life. He always goes back to God. And during one of those times, he writes in Psalms 51, Cleanse me. Wash me, wash my heart, cleanse me, and I will be new. So the thought of being washed is not just a New Testament you know, concept, washed by the Spirit. It's also an Old Testament concept kind of thing. So maybe Jesus was saying here, Hey, Nick, until you let the Lord wash you, wash your sins away, you're not going to be born again. Therefore, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. Now, I prefer the second option. I don't go with the, there's enough scripture for me to, to not believe in the idea that you, I, I think baptism is extremely important. I believe that if you refuse to be baptized, you're living in sin. That's what I believe. But if you refuse to be baptized, does that mean you're not going to heaven? Absolutely not. The Word of God says you believe in Him that He is the Son of God, that He did die for your sins, and that He rose three days later. If you believe in that and live that way, you'll be going to heaven and you'll be with Him. And then He says, you need to be baptized. So if you don't follow through on that, you're living in sin. That is my view of that. Now listen to what Jesus says next. It is so cool. Jesus Christ immediately starts to work in in our lives when we confess that He is Lord. He starts to soften our hearts. He says, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. It amazes me how the Lord personalizes this. Nick comes to the Lord with him and we's and so forth. And Jesus turns it into a you and I type of thing. What is really cool is that he knows that Nicodemus is ready to hear this. You need to hear this, Nick. I wonder if Nicodemus was in awe or if he was like, does this guy know who I am? I am, you know, I'm a pretty good teacher. I mean, does he know who I am at all? I mean, this is shocking to him. And the word Jesus uses here for spirit is the word ruach, which means, translates in Hebrew, you know, the word breath, the breath of God. How cool is that? The Greek word would be pneuma, which means wind. So Jesus says here, this is spiritual, Nick, not logical. A mind without the ruach. The mind without the spirit cannot understand. This is not an easy thing for a Pharisee to figure out. In verse 9, he goes on and says, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Sounds like a student here, doesn't he? Usually the students are asking him, Well, I don't understand this. How could this be? And he's starting to sound like the student. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? 
And this is kind of, I, I think this is rabbi humor. You know, he's kind of joking around, well, aren't you the teacher of Israel? Come on. Do you not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now this is fascinating because what he's doing is bringing up a story that Nicodemus would know well. And this is, comes out of the book of, uh, you know, book of Numbers in chapter 20. And the children of Israel are, are in the wilderness and they're complaining to Moses. We hate manna. We've been eating this manna forever. Come on, can't we have something? Can you go to God? Just ask him. So God, you know, he, he does this a couple times. He's like, fine. They want something else? I'll give them snakes. They can eat snakes. Sounds great. Hey, you know, at first they're liking it. Hey, a little bit of food here, a little bit of meat, a little bit of substance. It's different than manna. But as snakes do, what do they do? They like to bite. So they start biting the people and people start dying. So they go to Moses and say, what are we doing here? We're sorry. We're really sorry. We'll, we'll go back to manna. And God says, not so fast. I'm going to leave them there for a while. What I want you to do is take a pole and make an image of a brass serpent on it. And they had, you know, he had them look at the symbol of the sin. And what happened was, if you were bitten, he would run, in a sense, run or make it to this pole that had this brass serpent. And if you looked at it, you would be healed. Really strange way of, of doing this. Why did the Lord do this? Well, this is what Jesus is saying. Nick, this event is talking about me. I am like the snake. I am like the sin. I am taking your sin and I'm putting it on me. And I'm going to be up on that cross. I'm going to be lifted up just like the snake is being lifted up. And all that sin is going to be on me. And if you look toward me, you will be saved. That's what he's saying here. They will receive that salvation from me. In verse 16, it goes on. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Nick, I don't think you understand here. His only son. God loves the world. God loves the sinners. God loves this icky, icky world. The stuff in our life that we tried to hide. God loves us anyway. He's going, You think God loves you more? Because you're a Pharisee. But God doesn't love you more than he loves somebody else. He doesn't love you any more than everybody else. Because God loves everyone. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not be separated, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God didn't send me to condemn the world, not me, no. I'm not going to condemn it. But that the world through him might be saved. Man, this is some powerful verses right here. This is probably the, the, the most well-known verse in the whole world. I'm sure if you, you just go out to the grocery store and if you just start saying this, other people get it in their head and they'll start muttering it. Even if they're a Christian or not Christian because it's so well-known. Have you ever heard of a guy named D.L. Moody? 
He was a preacher in Chicago back in the you know, Civil War through the early 1890s. And he was visiting Europe and he met a preacher named Morehouse. And as people normally do, they're being really nice. Oh, hey, if you ever come to America, if you ever make it to Chicago, I mean, it's really expensive. I mean, their boat across the, you know, the, the Atlantic. It's not like he's just going to show up next week, right? Well, a couple of months later, he's back and Morehouse sends him a telegram. I'm in New York. I'll be in Chicago soon. In fact, I'll be there this Sunday. I'm ready to preach. Sign Morehouse. Well, T.L. Moody writes about this. I mean, what do you do? He talks with his wife. I've never heard this guy preach before. You know, and his wife, you know, the story talks about how his wife said, well, you, you are going on a trip. You did need somebody. Maybe this is the Lord providing that for, for you. So he comes in and preaches while Moody's away. Moody gets back the next week, you know, and, and as all pastors do, honey, how did it go last week? And, and really the question is, were there any problems that I need to know about before I get back up there? That was his question. And his wife's response was, oh, he was great. In fact, he was probably better than you. You know, I could imagine that call of conversation. What? Well, we've been having meetings all week long, every night here. Well, what was he preaching on? The same thing every night. I mean, these are the people that Moody's been preaching for for a while, trying to bring them to the Lord, and they're not really responding. And all of a sudden, this guy comes in named Morehouse, and they're having meetings every night. They're having an instant revival. And he's preaching the same thing, that God loves sinners. God loves sinners. God loves us. We're the sinners. We don't have to threaten people into responding to God. We don't have to guilt them into believing. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to, I'm, I'm going to say this, but this is not how I'm presenting it. You know, I'm going to go, well, if you go out here today and you get in an accident in the car, I don't want to beat somebody over the head with Christ because the Holy Spirit draws you in and it's your choice to respond. I want you to respond to that if you're not a Christian, but it's my, not my job to beat it into you. We don't need to do that because God loves sinners and as sinners he calls us to him and he wants us to respond God did not come to condemn us we're already condemned by the sin that's in our life God doesn't have to come and condemn us we already know that so Jesus is not here to make us feel bad verse 18 he says he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and man loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, it's not about intellectual decisions or discussions. It's about loving darkness. It's man saying, I love to sin too much to think about not having sin. To think about not wanting to sin. I love my life. I love the things that I'm doing too much to go that direction. I'm not done sinning yet. And I'm not going to argue about that. Because at the end of that, God still loves you. You can reject Him and reject Him and reject Him. And God still loves you. He wants you to come to Him. Even Peter said, How many times do I kind of forgive this guy? Give me a number, Lord. Is it seven times? And the Lord responds, 
No, it's 70 times 7. What draws us to Jesus is his grace. It's not how we present the gospel. Not how well or how bad we talk about, you know, talk to somebody about Christ. Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You just got to do it. Verse 20, it says, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to but he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. What is interesting to me is this. This conversation just ends here. We don't know much else. But we do start reading as we, as we start reading the rest of John. And I encourage you to go ahead and, and read that several times as we're going through this book of John. That in chapter 7 we see Nicodemus. He jumps up in the middle of the Sanhedrin and he starts defending Christ. This is how we know that he allowed the Holy Spirit to change him. For him to begin that process of being born again in a sense. And then in John chapter 19, guess who's taking Jesus off the cross? You have Joseph of Arimathea, you know, and you have, uh, you know, Nicodemus asking for permission from the Sanhedrin. He's taking the Lord off the cross. And this is a big deal for Nicodemus because he's part of the Sanhedrin. He's saying, guys, we just killed this man, but I believe he's God. I know you're going to deal with me. I know you might even kick me out. I don't care. I need to take my Lord off the cross. Was he born again? I think so. How do we know this? Because the wind blew. Remember in the conversation with Nicodemus? He says, you don't, you don't see the wind, but you feel its effects. You don't see a person change on the outside. Our eye color doesn't change. We don't get slimmer and, you know, buffer and all those things. But the wind blew. Our actions show us what we believe. By what you do and what you say and and how you choose to joke around and how you love your husband or your wife or, you know, how you love your kids or your grandkids or, or how you love your parents. What you do matters. That's what changes in us. People talk. People discuss. People look at our lives. So let me ask you, does the wind of the Holy Spirit blow in your life? Do you love God so much that He's changed you to a point where people can see the effect of the Holy Spirit in your life and they say, that person must be different. I don't understand what, I don't understand how, I don't understand this born-again stuff, but I know they're different, and I want to investigate that like Nicodemus. Don't reject a person who is investigating it. Don't ever reject a person who asks you a question. But tell them, you know what, until God reveals it to you, you're not going to understand it. But let me show you who my God is, so that He might reveal Himself to you, because He will. Given a chance, God will reveal himself to people. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our actions are pleasing to you. 
I know last night was a blast, Lord, and I just pray that everything we did was, was good in your sight, and I think it was. I pray in our conversations and our decisions and our actions reflect what we believe, that we believe in a God, that we understand because your Holy Spirit has revealed it to us, that we have been born again. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody out there who's not born again, that they ask questions and that we're able and willing to present the answers to them, to present the Holy Spirit to them. I pray, Lord, that you bring people into our lives that will ask questions like Nicodemus. And that sometimes we just clear out all the clutter and just tell them, you need to be born again to understand this. And they respond to that. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you and never turn away from you. May He bless your life when you follow His statutes. When we become more like Him, may He bless your life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.